Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161 AG61, Pragmatism, from the Easy Chair, excellent colloquies on various subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 165, March 10, 1988. This evening, Otto Scott and I are going to discuss pragmatism. Now, pragmatism may sound like a philosophical concept, but pragmatism is the reality of everyday life in our world today. Pragmatism is the American form of existentialism. The two have the same philosophical roots. According to existentialism, which is the European form of the philosophy, nothing matters except the moment. And the truly existential man is the man who is not influenced out of anything from the past, nor anything outside of himself, certainly not by God or by the church or by society at large, but only influenced by the biology of his being. As a result, what he wants is the truth for him. Nietzsche, who was in this line of thought, held emphatically that a lie is often far more valuable for life than the truth is. He was speaking of the truth and lies as people in society at large regarded them. Now, in the American form, this philosophy, known as I said as pragmatism, has had a practical orientation. It tells us that truth is what works. If a lie works, then it is the truth for us. The three great figures in American pragmatism were first Charles S. Peirce, who chose the name pragmatism in 1905, William James, and John Dewey. John Dewey sometimes called uh, his form of pragmatism instrumentalism, but basically what we have in the United States today is the pragmatic philosophy on all sides. Because the public schools or progressive education is really pragmatic education, virtually everyone who has gone through the public schools has picked up pragmatism. As a result, truth for them is what works, what succeeds, not what God declares it to be. The whole of the Western world, the whole of the world today, in fact, is in the grips of this kind of thinking. And this is why we are in very, very serious trouble. Well, with that general introduction of the subject of pragmatism, Otto, would you like to make some general statements? Well, yes. The... <clears throat> We don't hear the word pragmatism so much anymore. Although somebody can be described as pragmatic, and that's considered an individual who is opposite of an ideologue. An ideologue in the modern parlance is somebody who is dedicated to some theory and, and idea. And a pragmatist is somebody who is not so encumbered and it really is considered an encumbrance then we have something else of course we have the uh, argument that anyone who has a belief is by that nature intolerant because there are unbelievers in the view of a believer that makes the believer intolerant so we're in a rather a mess, I would say, because although we still have dictionaries, and you were reading a 
dictionary of thought, apparently. The fact of the matter is the language has become simultaneously slippery and imprecise. In 1910 or 12, I would say the average educated person had a pretty good idea of what William James and John Dewey were talking about when they talked about pragmatism. Today, I don't think the average educated person really understands what it means. It's taken to mean somebody who will accept reality as an end in itself and who doesn't believe in anything that I is intangible unless it affects tangible things. Uh, For instance, the modern historians will accept the idea that certain ideas in history had an influence on history only because they can trace that influence. But if they don't find any record of that influence that didn't didn't exist. Let's take, for instance, a female influence in Washington, D.C., which was always enormous from the days of Dolly Madison onward. And I, I mention it because I just happened to flick through a copy of a biography of uh, Alice Roosevelt Longworth in which the author of the biography mentions the fact that one of the things that sank Woodrow Wilson's League of Nations was her enmity and her influence in Washington, D.C. in the United States Congress. Mm-hmm. But a pragmatist would say, can you prove that? And that is evidenced by the fact that one of the leading historians of the period, when asked about her influence, said, well, her name rarely appears on anything. Yes. Well, that brings up, since you raised the political uh, aspect through Alice Longworth, the matter of politics. Bill Richardson has more than once told me that the most useless thing to do in the California State Senate or in any legislative body anywhere is to bring up the question of truth, of right and wrong, because what people are interested in is will it work? Will it bring the voters into our camp? Will it please the voter? At the same time, the voter Uh, he says, has a short memory, no more than 90 days. And it is because he thinks pragmatically. Truth says that things are right or wrong, true or false, yesterday, today, and forever. Things don't change. But if you're pragmatic, you don't look at the long range. You look at the short term. You improvise. Now, as a result of pragmatism, we have no longer a desire on the part of our ideologues for a planned society, but a planning society. This is a very interesting fact. In many ways, we are more radical than the Soviet Union when it comes to thinking philosophically. The Soviet Union does not believe in uh, good or evil, right or wrong. It does not believe in truth. But it recognizes the danger of allowing such thinking to range in the population. Therefore, although they recognize the kinship of Karl Marx, the whole line of existentialist thought, they refuse to allow existentialist philosophy in the Soviet Union. They have written against it because they know it is so corrosive of everything. It dissolves everything in a sea of meaninglessness. And they have to say that while the universe is meaningless, communism is the truth. Well, here you're... The actual purpose, I think, is the for reasons of state. The communists, like the Nazis and the fascists, argued that the state is an enterprise that requires everyone's loyalty and everyone's life and property. And if anything that that advances or expands the state is good, 
and anything that retards or frustrates the state or opposes the state or differs from the state is bad. Pragmatism probably is <clears throat> something that they live with because they operate that way, but they don't want to hear any philosophy accepting the approved version of Marxism. Yes. No other ideas are uh, discussed or allowed to be discussed. I often wonder what would happen to uh, so many of our professors and literati and journalists and so forth if they were just simply transported and if by some fluke God would enable them all to speak Russian and they were dropped into the enemy camp to then struggle with its restrictions. But the pragmatic argument is really what animates, for instance, business. Without the restrictions of law, the law, of course, the rules keep business operating within a certain degree of civility. There's a limit to what you can do. You can't dump uh, products below cost on the market, and you can't do this, and you can't do that. All of these laws which arose as a result of various business practices which had to be stopped. But Schumpeter, I think it was, who said that capitalism would destroy itself by its own creativity, by constantly discarding old products, even proven products, for newer products and so forth. A constant change, and he said this constant change prevents stability and in the long run will wear everybody out in the system itself. Now, well, that I think is true if they have an overall pragmatic philosophy because it is so uh, totally corrosive. It's like an acid, pragmatism is. It will destroy every area, including religion. The churches today are by and large pragmatic and their theological thinking is pragmatic. The congregations are pragmatic. And because they are pragmatic, they don't think in terms of truth. What is the truth? But what's in Christianity for me? One of the most uh, telling accounts of the early church has to do with what was barbershop and street talk in Constantinople or Byzantium during one of the great councils of the Christian church. Even the uh, uh, commoners in the street were discussing aspects of the doctrine of Christ. They were doing it because this was truth, and truth was basic to the life of man. But today, what is basic to the life of man is getting what he wants. So the kind of preaching that prevails in the church has nothing to do with truth so much as self-help, psychology, what's in uh, Christianity for you, and uh, how to find uh, this or that uh, through Christ. And the definitions of Christianity are increasingly man-centered. I had a very interesting letter today from uh, a very fine uh, person uh, who listens to these tapes, Captain Blake, Blakey. And uh, he asked about the definition of a Christian. He is a Christian, but with all the conflicting definitions, he wondered, something is wrong here. Something is off-center. Well, he's very right, because we can define a Christian and be accurate by saying he is someone who has been saved by the grace of God through the atonement of Jesus Christ and therefore has the assurance of eternal life. We can vary that uh, by differing stresses. But the significant fact with all our definitions of a Christian is in terms of man. Whereas a Christian 
can be defined if we look at things from a God-centered perspective as one whom God has chosen through Christ and appointed to serve him. Then the emphasis is on God's purpose, not our status with regard to heaven or hell and what kind of life or fire insurance we have. Well, the churches here, due to our Constitution, which I don't admire as much as most people seem to do, were thrown out into the street by the lawyers of Philadelphia who decided not to have a Christian country. They got hung up on the idea that there wasn't supposed to be an establishment of religion and they forgot to say that this is going to be a Christian country in any sense or that Christianity would be defended in any way. They took it for granted that it would never change. But in effect, they took all the promises of religion, the pursuit of happiness, safety, security, all kinds of things, and they set up a lawyer's paradise and the church was disenfranchised totally. It's true that it remained in some of the states for another generation, but in effect, the clergy of the United States was thrown upon the mercy of the people. So therefore, they began to scramble for a livelihood. And you have what one of our visitors once called cafeteria uh, religion, where yeah. people shop in order to find which, uh, which promises or which incense or whichever uh, is most comfortable for them. And they don't come back to a church where the sermons make them feel uncomfortable about themselves and so forth. Religion then has lost its awe. Yes. It's lost its power to terrify because people are not afraid of it. They, I remember being in a storm in the North Atlantic and thinking whatever God is, he's certainly no buttercup. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> but we have this, uh, is coming, people here are beginning to pay the price spiritually. Uh, somebody mentioned reading an article in a, in a woman's magazine. I don't know why he was reading a woman's magazine. Maybe he was just curious. At any rate, he said the article was by this woman who said, why is it that I earn so much and have so little? And I thought, well, that could apply to a great deal more than money. Why do I work so hard and get so little? Why do so many Americans live so materially well and yet have such spiritually impoverished lives? What has happened to the larger significance of being alive, of being a man or a woman, of being a member of a society or a social order? Well, what has happened, of course, is that everything has been put on a pragmatic level. You have no right to be unhappy if you're wearing shoes, if you've got a decent job, if there's nothing wrong, if there's an ent emptiness in your life. The psychologist tells you, well, you have to adjust. This is a neurosis. A very good point. What we are seeing is that at the most prosperous levels of our society, drugs and liquor are taking over. One of our most prominent actor entertainers has said that uh, when it is nighttime, he's ready to try anything to get some sleep. Uh, praying, liquor, a woman, drugs, he tries them all. What's wrong with staying awake? I mean, life is miserable if you're not occupied and if your yes, life is empty. Yeah, he can't, can't spend time alone. No. He has nothing to do, nobody to be with. Well, pragmatism creates a consumer-oriented society because it puts the emphasis on what works for you. Truth is what works for you. Well, you have then consumer-oriented religion. And uh, some of our prominent TV uh, preacher entertainers have shown us uh, what that leads to. 
It leads to the kind of religion that is empty of everything except making you feel good. It is closely linked with antinomianism and leads into immoralism, as it has. And it does nothing to change the lives of people and of the country. So we have a consumer-oriented society because we are pragmatic in our orientation. Well, then, we go to school for this purpose, you see. It permeates the educational establishment where people go to school in order to acquire certain skills, in order to get a profession. Uh, A profession doesn't mean what it used to mean. They're not professing anything. They are not uh, engaged in activities to assist society. The lawyers used to pro bono publico. Uh, the doctor is supposed to donate part of his time for the poor, and so forth. Well, the, there weren't very many professions. Now you hear the I hear people say, "Well, uh, uh, speaking as a professional," and then I say, "Well, what is your profession?" Well, it turns out uh, to be all kinds of things which mm-hmm. never have been considered professions yeah. before. Uh, most of the hard sciences are not professions, they're skills. The profession is something that is much broader, but we still have the 19th century language. And I think a great deal of our difficulty, uh, even uh, you and I discussing some of these subjects, is the slipperiness of the language. We are now in an area which does not describe itself accurately. And, well, th- and that is a great impediment. Yes, the language has become slippery because education has become slippery and the dictionaries. Dictionaries are terrible, atrocious. Yes. They no longer try to define things correctly, but in terms of uh, popular usage, which often is incorrect, sometimes simply because a prominent person has used it incorrectly. Now, the first half of this century, the progressive educators uh, worked hard in terms of a general program, which was summed up in this. They did not want to teach subjects. They were going to teach children. I never answered the question, teach children what? if you're anti-subject. Previously, the child had to conform to a body of knowledge. Here was the truth. Here was knowledge. This is what the child had to learn. But when the child was made the center of education, and it meant the child could not be plucked because the child was the center, not the subject. The subject plucked. It was discarded if it were a problem, but the child remained. And as a result, the child learned only one thing, that the world revolved around him or her. Well, the child learned something else. The child learned two things, I think. Um, First of all, these are schools of obedience, because any dissent in the modern American educational system means that you're going to flunk out. Despite all the glowing rhetoric, that is the actual fact. Secondly, the child learns that there is no such thing as uh, rewards for merit. There's only rewards for conformity. Yes. If you go along, if, you, if, if the teacher likes you, you will be sent from grade to grade, and you'll wind up with a degree. But if the teacher doesn't like you, if you've made yourself obnoxious by asking questions or saying no when you're expected to say yes, or if you're a real oddball and don't join the crowd and would prefer to sit in the corner and read a book, then you're going to have a great deal of trouble. So, But the abolition of merit, I think, takes many different forms. I've had had fellows, when I was younger, I remember, some outstanding, standing crime would be committed and I'd say well how could a fellow do that well you'd do the same if you had the chance mm. yes uh, when you break down truth you break down 
inhibition. You break down restraints. And then conformity uh, prevails to the mob, to the crowd. Just conformity downward. Yes. I recall very, very vividly uh, in the 50s, a very dear friend of mine who was horrified when uh, her boy, who was a good boy, brought home a note that she was to go and uh, see the teacher because of very serious problems of uh, social deviancy. Oh, boy. And the mother was horrified. What kind of perversion was her boy, unknown to her, involved in? Well, the social deviancy was that during the playground time, recess, he preferred to sit and read a serious book. Uh, that made him a social deviate. Well, of course. Of course, I'll never forget. Forgive me for relating it again. This seaman that always came over interrupted me when I was reading a book. And one day he caught me at a very well, a passage I was burning to finish. And I put the book down and I said to him, How is it every time I read you interrupt me? Well, he said, I think you're lonely. He was really a very nice man. I closed the book then and talked to him. But... <laughs> But, of course, if he'd been a school teacher, I guess I'd have gotten a bad mark. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, well yeah, go ahead. Well, this loss of merit is a very, very important subject because once a society reaches a stage where you cannot advance through merit, where merit is looked upon as a form of stupidity, because you, to get along, you have to go along. You have to uh, go the Lyndon Johnson way. Now, Lyndon Johnson is still in the history books as the president of the United States, and he was a great thief and liar. And this is a very bad example. It's an example just as bad for our society as Lenin was, as Mao Zedong was, as Fidel Castro, you succeed through murder. You succeed through swindling. You succeed through all these things. And the pragmatists would say that's not the point. The point is they won. Yes. Yes. When you deny the validity of truth, when you say truth is what works, yeah. then you abolish any standard, whether it is merit or civility or anything. Right. The only thing that then remains is, did he succeed? Well, all right. Now, this is the historical problem that many historians fall into, that the, the party that won is proven right by the fact that they won. Yes. They always write as though history was inevitable. All the winners are doomed to win, fated to win. But this is nonsense. Yes. Because in some cases... The victory is a pyrrhic victory for the society, just as it is for the individual. How many men have been destroyed by success in modern times? Yeah. Legions. Well, we have seen what historians have done, not only with the past, but with the last decade, the last two decades, as... Uh, you mentioned Johnson, then uh, Nixon. Nixon's offense was a very minor thing. Nixon's offense was to be loyal to men who had broken the law, although he had not told them to do so. Yes. And uh, Johnson... Uh, <laughs> Johnson stole. He br took bribes when he was vice president. He has, was implicated in some murders. Uh, it's hard to think of things that Johnson didn't do. And he remains the favorite president of his ilk. Yes. Well, and Carroll's uh, first volume on the life of Johnson has not altered matters in the slightest. His reputation remains right up there. Yes. 
or the book on Martin Luther King. Uh, that book hasn't shaken people's admiration. Well, that's King. because they didn't think too much of either man to begin with, in a moral sense. Yeah. They knew what they were admiring. Yeah. Actually, very few people are fooled on these matters. There are really no great secrets in the world. No. Well, when pragmatism prevails, I do believe a society signs its own death warrant. Because if the difference between a truth and a lie makes no difference for you, then you are in trouble. Well, just think of everyone who has to deal with you, which yeah. is a subject that seldom arises. Yeah. I mean, have you ever run into people who say, I don't seem to be able to make any friends? <laughs> and you look at them and you say, oh, you don't say it, but you say to yourself, I'm not surprised. Mm -hmm. One of the most powerful influences uh, for pragmatism in this country has been not John Dewey, but Oliver Wendell Holmes. As a professor of law, as well as a Supreme Court judge, he made pragmatism basic to American life. During World War I, in a letter, he said, and I quote, when I say a thing is true, I mean that I can't help believing it and nothing more, unquote. He also said, and I quote, When I was young, I used to define the truth as the majority vote of that nation that can lick all the others. So we may define the present war as an inquiry concerning truth. Unquote. It's amazing that Oliver Wendell Holmes is held aloft by so many for so long when he was really a, a bad social influence. He's the one who said the law, the Constitution is what the court says it is. Yeah. He, uh, he, he believes that. And I'm not, I think actually it was part of his generation because it was the same generation that promoted pragmatism, that promoted Dewey, and he was part of that New England coterie which uh, promoted uh, any means for abolition. The war was a good thing. Uh, all the great social crusades which has led us into this swamp that we now flounder around in. Sons of Emerson. Everyone. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, he he's, he's the one who said free speech does not include the right to holler fire in a crowded theater. He was a he expressed the commonplaces of his time and therefore be had a reputation for being brilliant. When he died, a book was published, I believe, in the 50s entitled A Yankee from Olympus. I will never forget it. Yeah, uh, uh, he were God who had yes, come to exactly. us. Yes, Well, I have read the opinions of Oliver Wendell Holmes, his lectures and papers, he was as shallow a man as you could hope to find. That's true. And yet, he has shaped our legal system. Well, in the interim, while we were changing from one side of the tapes to the other, I think the comment was made is it situation ethics that we're talking about. Yeah. And that's the new word for pragmatism. Yeah. I think that, that comes closer to it. Holmes really believed that anything that helped him was good, and anything that hurt him was bad. And this is what the, well, I wouldn't say the average man, I don't know the average man. Everyone I know is either above or below average. <laughs> but this is what a great many people believe. If it's good for me, it's good. Or if it's good for my people, it's good. If it's good for whatever, it's good. That ain't necessarily so. Yes. And situation ethics, being pragmatic, says it's true if it works. Ah, it's uh, true if it did work. Yes. And that's why the definition in a UCLA class that we were discussing a little while ago 
40, when uh, adultery was defined as getting caught. If you're not caught, it's all right. Well, that's like the seaman used to say, don't paint what they can't see. <laughs> and you notice that this is true in all modern furniture. You look at the underside of the table or the chair. Now, there was a time when furniture was properly made yeah. and properly painted, mm -hmm. when the craftsman didn't turn anything out that he couldn't stand behind and he wasn't proud of, but that's no longer so same thing, the situational ethics as applied to work, as applied to product. Mm -hmm. I recall years ago when I was a student reading something about the decline of uh, craftsmanship in the later Middle Ages, how earlier if there were a bit of sculpture high up on a cathedral's side, the work would be finished all the way around, even though no one was ever going to see it. Mm -hmm. When they also carved the underside of the pews. Yes. With more malicious things. Yes. But so you have when, dark and light. Yes. But when uh, things changed, they no longer were concerned with uh, doing things right where no man would see it. Well, you know, Russell Kirk, not one of my favorites, nor mine, uh, but a very prolific writer, mm -hmm. wrote a book called Enemies of Permanent Things, and I liked the title. It wasn't a very good book, I read it, but the title was very good because once you destroy the idea of permanence, once you lose the idea of the eternal, let me say, then the idea of the permanent ceases to have any meaning. We could long since have created all the artifacts that our society needs that would enable people to use them for life and then turned our minds to other matters. But it has never once occurred to our system to do that. We instead have a constant flood of relatively minor objects that all uh, obsolete fairly soon so that we have to keep buying the same things throughout our lives. And this is a real waste of time, effort, technology, and everything else. There's something wrong with this. And it's mainly, I think, uh, because we don't think in permanent terms. My father, I remember pointing out to me when I was young in Latin America, how the houses were built of stone. And he said, the United States, they build their houses of wood. And he said, I don't understand how they could do that, how they could pay so little attention to what they were doing. He said, a stone house will last for generations. It's here forever. And in old parts of the world, North Africa, the Middle East, Italy, and so forth, you see houses made of stone. With the idea that you were permanently rooted and you had a permanent society, now the whole idea of permanence is gone, and this is, I think, one of the results of situation ethics, because it's the situation that's important and not the ethic. Yes, and uh, the heart of the situation is the person hmm. who is his own God, and everything must revolve around him. Well said. Well, we have a world, thus, that is very deeply involved in pragmatism or situation ethics or existentialism, and it affects every area, including the arts. Do you want to comment on that sphere? Well, yes. We had originally, let's say, by the latter part of the 19th century, a world of art, that, let's say painting and music, architecture, which was the inheritor of all the developments of the ages, uh, had rediscovered perspective in painting during the Renaissance and so forth, and were outstripping anything of the classical eras. Then we had rebels in art. We had two kinds of rebels. We had cultural rebels who were rebelling against the entire civilization and all its traditions and, and mores. And we had artists who needed to break in who didn't have the talent. So a whole new art world was created. 
consisting of networks of dealers, of shops, of critics, of reviewers, of, uh, you might say, cafe society, and artists, dilettantes, beginning in Vienna and spreading to Berlin and spreading to Paris. took a long time to get here. It didn't get here until 1913 and not really until after World War II, which made a concerted, determined effort to destroy the entire tradition of Christian art in music, in dance, in painting, in everything. And with all the instruments of modern communications, they created a market for anti-art and anti-music and anti-dance and anti-thought, anti-beauty. Yes, uh, you may recall, Otto, last year the Wall Street Journal had a long front-page story about the fact that all this modern art in the museums and in private collections is now disintegrating. Because these artists... Thank the Lord. Uh, refuse to learn anything from the past. They don't know the basic disciplines with regard to materials. And for that reason, the paints, the materials they work on, are all shoddy, and they disintegrate. Some things that are less than 50 years old have had to be restored two or three times and are still in process of disintegration, and the end is in sight for them. Well, look, at music. We're still playing 19th and 18th century music because we have no music of the 20th century worth paying. Future centuries are going to look back at the 20th century as an era of devastation. One of the worst steps backwards in the long history of mankind and suicide of a civilization, if you call it that. The only thing that saved the ballet was the fact that the commissar had a ballerina as a mistress and he decided that the masses deserved the ballet. <laughs> Otherwise, it would have been wiped out everywhere because here is this czarist uh, remainder, so to speak, still performing. Modern dance has never quite been able to catch on, catch up with it music, the whole thing, but it is beginning to fall apart. And when you think of artists like Jackson Pollock, the drip painter, mm -hmm. you know, who dripped paint at random on the canvas, different colors, uh, widely touted, his paintings are still being sold in very special circles to very special people. But the great mass of the world has turned, on, turned away. Situation ethics, and you, if you uh, if you talk this way in New York, they'll say, but it sells. People buy it. These are wealthy artists. Picasso got progressively worse the richer he got. Yes, uh, one of the things about Picasso uh, I think is interesting. Whenever he had a new mistress whom he was very much... Uh, drawn to, he would uh, paint her in the classical style. When he began to hate her and wanted rid of her, the girl could usually tell. He would begin to paint her in the Picasso style. He would give her three <laughs> eyes. <laughs> and she got the message that way. Well, well, you see, many people can't believe this because there is a market for modern art and there are schools of modern art and there are modern artists and modern critics and so forth. I remember being in New York on one occasion, New York City, when Wyeth was holding an exhibition. There was an exhibition of Wyeth paintings and there were a crowd of people three blocks long waiting to see them. And the uh, Canby, the art critic of the New York Times, was infuriated, and he wrote a column against fascism in art. Mm -hmm. and the sad fact is that Wyeth is not the painter his father was, because he has been infected by the modern temper, and his is a lonely, barren world. Well, you haven't seen the Helga pictures. They're not yes. so lonely or barren. Oh, yes. 
but uh, his father's his father's were very good uh, pictures were full of life and vitality that's true so even with Wyatt one of the very best you see the decline well technically he's very able tremendous and I remember that Jamie Wyatt at that point Somebody wanted said he was in town when Canby's column came out and wanted to quote him on what he thought of the column. But Jamie was in the Bellevue morgue drawing cadavers, studying. Now, I don't know how many modern artists study or are encouraged to study. They're encouraged to be themselves. Well, I want to be better than that. I used to know a young woman uh, with a great deal of talent, and some of her paintings were jewels, but she felt she needed an art school, and it totally destroyed her. No, she didn't have the strength of character to withstand the professor's push into the modern, away from your style into somebody else's style. She was never able to recover the very real talent she had. That's a sad story, but it's been multiplied, I think, many, many times. Uh, The average child at, say, four years old is avidly drawing and gets into the average school and at the end of two or three years stops drawing, Mm -hmm. stops singing, stops a lot of things. Uh, They've been stamped on. Yes, that's a very interesting point, Otto. Uh, Before World War II, one of the most uh, commonplace things uh, when a group were in a car was to start singing if they were taking a trip of any distance. That's right, in a bus even. Yes, and it wasn't that you didn't have a radio in the car. It was because you enjoyed it. That's right. Singing on the way home from parties. Yes. And so forth, singing around the piano. Yes. Uh, we sang in school all the time. Mm-hmm. Beautiful songs. Yes. Or after a football game, singing on the way home. I don't think bus. I've heard people sing in 20 years. No. That's gone. Well, that's the pragmatic world, isn't yes. it? What good is it? Mm-hmm. The only th- what you do hear is that you hear young men on street corners training to become the Beatles, singing in harmony together or trying to become, uh, you know, I don't understand these uh, uh, rock musicians anyway. Why do they all look so uh, murderous? Why, why, why do they look so evil? <laughs> I've Maybe. never quite made the connection between that and, and any kind of music, you know. Maybe they look that way because they either come from the gutter or are headed there. <laughs> well, it's just a thought in passing, but <laughs> a lot of joy certainly has vanished. Yes. So what did the absence of the permanent bring to us? It brought the impermanent. It, it brought the insubstantial. It brought the dangers. Because if you're not sure of what's going to be next Thursday, how can you be relaxed? How can you create? I remember that the periods in which I did no writing were periods in which I had a great many problems, and I couldn't rid my mind of the problems long enough to do any decent writing. It isn't true that artists flourish in adversity. Adversity destroys art, because art is an expression of joy, and it's very hard to be joyful when uh, things are terrible. And we are not creating the uh, atmosphere for art to flourish, even though I think we do have an occasion. Remarkable uh, demonstrations of what somebody said, the fact that some of the most beautiful flowers appear in dung hills. Uh, As you know, declining periods of civilization often produce marvelous works of art. It's a paradox, nobody can quite explain. But by and large, we don't have the number of people who play instruments, we don't have the people who sing, we don't have the people who really indulge in art. It's become a sort of a subcult. Yes, 
And one aspect of this pragmatism has been uh, functionalism in architecture. So you have all these uh, steel and glass monsters. Oh, that's Tom Wolfe's from our house, to, from the Bauhaus to our house. Yes. Yes. So, uh, of course, when you have an earthquake, or in one city recently where they had a strong wind during the night, the city uh, street was full of glass the next day. Uh, which, if it happened when there was a considerable amount of foot traffic, would have killed a number of people. But uh, one aspect of this, which is very destructive of art, and Frank Lloyd Wright and others have a tremendous burden of guilt here in their corruption of American society, is this. Some years ago, I knew a young artist who uh, believed in uh, creating a Christian art, church art. He felt, for example, that uh, church doors should be carved and should be beautiful. That a cross should be carved and should be a thing of beauty and majesty. He took very seriously what uh, the Bible says, that the things in the tabernacle and the temple were to be for beauty and for glory. And they were to be carved, and there were all kinds of things uh, that were carved for the tabernacle and temple by God's command. And he got nowhere with it. His work was marvelous, but no one was interested. Not even churches that could afford it. Weren't modern enough? Wasn't What was the need for it? A door is a door, and a cross is a cross. They were ready to put vast sums of money into a structure, but anything like that that would be a work of art and turn the very entrance of the uh, church into a thing of beauty, uh, they weren't interested in paying extra for it, and it was not for lack of funds. Well, that's too bad. Tom Wolfe, you know, has done more than any other reporter, journalist, a great journalist, on the situation of our times. I mean, he took the hide off modern art uh, in his book, The Painted Word. Yes. And he also uh, killed them with uh, the, these terrible glass-hung monstrosities uh, when he wrote from the Bauhaus to our house. Mm -hmm. Now his book, The Bonfire of the Vanities, is a very interesting book. It's broken many uh, taboos. It's portrayed the minority members of New York City as uh, terrible, hate-filled people. Nobody comes out well in the book, which is maybe the only reason he could get away with it. Uh, I think it sold 600,000 copies in the first three and a half months. Uh, but it is a book without faith and a book without hope and there is no catharsis in the book. Nobody ever really improves. And the thing that marks a great novelist is, of course, the fact that he stands against fate. He stands against the tide. He, his, God helps him, and he rises up. Uh, in this book, nobody rises up. And it is a book in which everyone reasons pragmatically. The assistant district attorney is reasoning how the case can help his career, and the district attorney is trying to reason how the case will help his political ambitions, because they have in the protagonist of the novel a wealthy white man who is accused of a crime against two poor black youths. So, of course, it immediately becomes the focus of a racial and class scandal. And... Uh, the various people who come and go in this, there are some good ones, of course, uh, throw a light on 
that terrible city as it is today. But there is no hope in it because apparently Tom Wolfe has no faith. So God is absent from the book. Mm -hmm. And when God is absent from the author's mind, the book ceases to have any eternal value. Yes. And it's amazing because the, the characters in the book, the characters in the book are all, already being cited in editorials and articles as stereotypes of people whom we know in our society, much as uh, Sinclair Lewis once did when he portrayed Aerosmith or Babbitt and so forth, Elmer Gantry and so on. Wolf has therefore succeeded remarkably and at the same time signally failed. Yes, and that is an important fact because a situation ethics, pragmatism, existentialism, whatever name you want to give it, is failing. It is creating a world of death. And uh, into that world, we as Christians must step and exercise dominion. Certainly the humanists cannot do it. I cited uh, earlier this very, very prominent entertainer whose uh, fortune is one of the greatest, who nonetheless said that at evening he was always looking for something that would work, uh, a prayer, a liquor, drugs, or a woman anything because life was unbearable mm. now for us instead of being unbearable it's a privilege and a joy it's a wonderful thing to be alive yes a scripture speaks of the grace of life yes. for us it's a grace it's a yes. gift from God it is and we have a magnificent future because we know that we have all eternity to develop and work and to serve God. And there, there will be no curse, no sin, no problem to hinder us in our work. So, although these people are very powerful around us, they're losers. And they can never be anything else unless they turn to the Lord. I thought of that once. I I may do it again. I wrote a brief piece, which was never published, called The Sour Smell of American Success. A very good title. The Sour Smell of American Success. Now you've got to use that title I again. Will. Okay, I will. Yes. Well, we who are Christians have our share of problems because it is an evil world and a particularly evil generation. But life is good for us, and all its promises in Christ are yea and amen. So we can face the pragmatism of this era because the truth is what sets us free and gives us a future. It's very interesting that Sinclair Lewis's last novel was called Hotel. And Lewis, by that time, had learned a lot since he wrote Elmer Gantry and so forth. The last novel was not a critical success. It was about a man who wanted to be, who wanted to have and operate a good, decent hotel. That was his ambition. And after many tribulations, he finally got a small place of his own, and he was standing behind the desk, and it was facing the uh, street, and there was a big picture window, and he looked stern because life had left its stamp on his face, but he was actually very happy when his younger brother, who had gone the other way, came up to the uh, traffic light in a white roadster with a blonde next to him, both of them miserable in the midst of a terrible argument, and looked in, and the one in the roadster looked in and saw the one behind the desk and said, oh, he's a failure and drove on, and that was the end of the book. <laughs> and it was a great little book Sinclair Lewis wrote. You can see why it failed. Yes, 
and what he had learned about success. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Well, are there any other closing uh, remarks you'd like to make, Otto? Our time is beginning to run out. Well, ethics are larger than the situation. Yes, very good. And the world is bigger than this generation. And they are but a small speck in the face of time and eternity. So we should not be unduly uh, disturbed at their insanities. They're going to pass away. Their heart is disintegrating already. Their books will be in the trash heap. And what is of the Lord will endure. Well, thank you all for listening, and uh, God bless you. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by ChristRules.com.